Clearly, that was going to offer a bridge over a lot of problems, but I would have expected some deterioration at this point. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that we're all queer. I don't think we're completely out of this yet. I think the jury's still sort of out. But I do think that the, the credit trends have been really encouraging. Deferral balances have declined to virtually nothing. So that, that's been really encouraging. Welcome, everyone, to the 11th episode of In Your Best Interest, an ALM First podcast, a show that will explore common depository challenges, give you an insider's view of the latest market trends, and share stories and insights from industry leaders. I'm your host, Mike Ensweiler. We spent a lot of time on the podcast discussing challenges all depositories are facing in an era of social unrest, economic uncertainty, a global pandemic, and an interesting political climate. Today, we've gotten perspectives from ALM First, as well as prominent figures in the credit union community. This week, I'll be joined by Nathan Stovall from S&P Global, and we'll be taking a closer look at what he is hearing on these issues in community banking. Nathan's primary responsibilities include covering and analyzing financial institutions with a focus on the banking industry. Nathan regularly writes about emerging balance sheet trends, trends in bank accounting, regulation, interest rate risk, capital actions, and M&A activity. He is the author of a monthly column focused on banking in the South and the banking blog, Street Talk. His in-depth analysis of the banking industry, including a focus on smaller institutions, can be found at SNL's research and analysis feature, which includes historical and forward-looking figures. During his tenure, he has regularly covered and participated on the conference circuit, moderating panels and webinars focused on major issues facing banks. He has spoken at industry events, offering updates on bank fundamentals, market conditions, and forecasts for what lies ahead. Welcome, Nathan, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here. You know, before we get into the theme of the day, which are challenges and opportunities in banking heading into 2021, tell us a little bit about yourself, Nathan. Sure. So I was a business journalism major in college. I thought I was going to be a, a newspaper guy. Uh, came out, started working for a small company called SNL Financial, covering banks across the country, and I thought I'd be there maybe six months, um, but that was about 17 years ago. I fell in love with uh, the banking <laughs> space. Um, uh, I drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, uh, and kind of the rest is history. Um, loved meeting people across the country and, and learning as much as I can about banks. So you started in SNL. At some point along the way, that became S&P Global. Um, are you doing the same thing, or what, what do you actually do at S&P? Well, my role has changed a little bit over that time frame, but the whole time I would say that I, I've largely covered the banking industry. We became part of S&P in 2015, and about that time I transitioned from our news team to our research team, uh, our financial institutions research team. And, it, and as part of that, not only do I still write data-driven work following trends, but every quarter I publish projections for the banking industry as a whole as well as community banks and aggregate. 
with an idea of just trying to highlight what is driving profitability and what is impacting key strategic decisions at, at banks. I also host the podcast myself, uh, please tune in, anybody listening here, uh, called Street Talk, uh, which focuses on some of the key themes impacting banks in the investment community. And it's a, if you haven't heard Nathan's podcast, it is awesome. You're 70 episodes deep right now, and it's been a, a great inspiration for me as we've, you know, now are in our 11th episode of In Your Best Interest. So keep up the great work, and hopefully for those of you tuning in, if you haven't listened to it, it's a, a great opportunity to learn a lot more, take a deeper dive into what's going on in community banking. So having said that, it's the start of bank's earnings season. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? Any surprises to this point? I, I think the biggest surprise is when you were, if you had told me we'd be six months into a pretty severe recession with double-digit unemployment for a long part of that period and seeing almost no deterioration in credit, I, I would have said there's no way. So while we had a lot of appreciation for Fed actions, you know, nearly doubling their balance sheet, $3 trillion in stimulus uh, provided to, to the consumer uh, through checks and expanded unemployment benefits, and of course, forbearance that banks have provided through the CARES Act, providing loan deferrals, which you know, we estimated reached about a trillion dollars uh, wow. by, by June 30th, a huge number, nearly, nearly 10% of loans. Yeah. It, clearly, that was going to offer a bridge over a lot of problems, but I would have expected some deterioration at this point. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that we're it's all clear. I don't think we're completely out of this yet. I think the jury's still sort of out, but I do yep. think that the the credit trends have been really encouraging. Deferral balances have declined to virtually nothing, um, so that that's been really encouraging and a really big takeaway. But on the flip side. I don't think we had as much of appreciation for how much margins might be under pressure, how much excess liquidity was really going to eat in the profitability, because sort of like credit, you thought, okay, this will be a short-term relief, and then eventually some pain will come. With the liquidity, you said, yep. this is kind of short-term, but some of it's going to be fleeting. It's hung around here, and most institutions have kept their powder dry, so that just really leads to a place where if you're parking at the Fed or in eight, 10 basis points and your cost funds is 35, 40, you're, you're losing money on that trade. And so just seeing, right. you know, margins get kind of crushed. And I saw probably my 130th research report today that said earnings beat lower loan loss provision than expected excess liquidity hits margin. Almost every print could be described that way. So, I mean, that that's really been the big kind of takeaway that I don't think people really appreciated that credit could be this good for this long and that liquidity would hang around so much. You know, the credit being is good for so long. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to someone yesterday, uh, a bank president, and he said that, you know, one of the things they're waiting on is the PPP loans um, to come in. He's waiting for the application so he can get those off his books, essentially. Um, have, have you, what have you heard on the, the PPP front from the people you're talking to? You know, that's another thing that, Wind back the clock a few months, everybody thought PPP would be gone by the end of the year, almost all of it, right? And what we've been hearing in terms of fee recognition, which is another way of saying when this stuff actually is forgiven and, and, and goes off books, most people yep. are putting Q1 um, and, and their expectations. So not so much that soon. And, and I think 
Some of that is around lack of clarity around the forgiveness process, both from you know the bank side, but also the the borrower side. the 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 question mark for me is how much of it is sitting out there with borrowers who are fine to pay a one percent interest rate and and hold on to the cash for a long period of time because they're never going to get that deal again, right? And, right. and I don't know if we have a lot of clarity there. I mean, I don't think it's all the money, right? I'm not even suggesting it's a large portion of it, but I think we started this thinking it had to be a very small fraction and it might be bigger than people had thought. Are you seeing concerns from people who are more specialty lenders? They focus in on hotels or on other kind of specialty um, industries that have been greatly impacted by you know, the, the, the recession, the pandemic, what have you. No doubt. Anybody with greater exposure to at-risk industries, you know, whether or not they had seen problems to date, there's far more attention and, and scrutiny being paid there. And I, and I think one of the greatest measures is I mentioned where deferrals were and the fact that you've seen them come down 75%. With what's remaining, it's all around at-risk industries and hotels being a, a, a great place to put it. You know, and a lot of that just has to do with how do hotels make their money? I mean, not only are people not going as often, uh, but business travel is almost non-existent and, and conferences are almost non-existent. And those are very, very profitable items for most hotels. In fact, I think is what drives their number. And so in the absence mm-hmm. of that, it seems like it's going to be really tough for for a lot of hotels to to, to really sort of stay afloat, I, I, I think. So that, that, that's an area that we, we've seen plenty of concern. Uh, anybody who is more reliant on tourism, for sure. Anybody who has more exposure to retail, restaurants, all the places you would think, those are the ones that are reporting more, more problems, not necessarily in the point of, uh, uh, from the point of non-accruals, but increase in classified assets, and the ones who are still asking for more relief in terms of deferrals. Yep, yep, makes perfect sense. You know, at Alem First, we hear a lot about and see a lot of excess liquidity, credit concerns, as we've talked about, margin compressions, as you mentioned earlier, um, profitability concerns. What are you hearing from bank executives on different strategy ideas they are investigating and or maybe embracing in this environment? I think the smartest guys are really drilling down. On, on both the liquidity piece and the credit piece, you know, maybe starting with credit, not just saying, okay, what's, what's my sector exposure per se, but trying to really look at the sector exposure and then create risk ratings w- within that, being really aggressive and working with their borrowers. Uh, the old line, first loss is, is the best loss. I, I don't think that's kind of true. So, Providing relief to borrowers where it could make sense if they do have some sort of on-ramp back, but but if not, trying to work to get to some sort of loss mitigation strategy like like you normally would. Similar kind of segmentation on on the liquidity side. You know, what is driving this liquidity? Is is it a bunch of commercial accounts doing this? Is this just a few people driving balances up? Is there's a bunch of consumer accounts. Is there granularity? And, and then running sort of what-if scenarios on that. Okay, what happens if a certain portion of this leaves 
this leaves the bank, not necessarily leaves the system, but ends up in somebody else's hands. And what does my liquidity position look like there? Am I comfortable if X amount leaves based on the fact that this seems to be an excess balance against sort of this normal time at customer? Or do I need to plan for, for uh, do I need to have a plan if, if that occurs? And, and, and what I would say sort of building on top of that is that we're hearing people say, okay, if I look at what's excess and I'm comfortable with it leaving, then I need to put more money to work because I'm losing money sitting at the Fed, or maybe I need to reach further out the curve uh, because the Fed has told us they're not raising rates anytime soon. And even if they do, there's likely going to be loan demand that comes with that. So there'll be a good opportunity that comes with that. And it's too expensive for me to sit in this cash today. Yep. Are you hearing any consensus or any any themes as to how long people think this cash is going to stick around? I, I really haven't, honestly. And I, I think it's going to be, I think it's sort of bar specific, but some of it's PPP. You know, what's your view on that PPP balance in terms of customers actually utilizing cash? Um, but some of it, I think, is also people building, ca- stockpiling cash out of abundance of caution, whether that's consumers, look at consumer savings rates, historically high record levels going back almost 70 years in April, May, June, and July, which is just a staggering number. Uh, some of that obviously driven by, by stimulus, but how much is that? rainy day money and people sort of preparing. So what's your, what's your view of, uh, of the consumer there um, in, in terms of them actually harvesting that cash? But I, I'll say that broadly, I haven't heard a lot of people making the case that they think it's going to go away like maybe they thought three months ago. Uh, one, one other thing, conversation that we're having beyond just sort of the deposit side of the business, look at how the secur- securities portfolio is behaving. It's generating far more cash than it historically has. We know banks, about half their portfolios or more are in MBS. And given that prepayments are so, so high right now, that's just generating yep. far, far more liquidity. So even if you think deposits are going to go, your securities portfolio is, is more liquid than it normally is. And I think you have to take that into consideration. I was, anecdotally, I was talking to a, a, a bank uh, president yesterday, and he said that they did a lot of Um, payment deferrals on the consumer side and they saw people who really never had savings accounts they were essentially taking those payments that they were making um, and just parking them parking it in cash um, and in in creating (laughs) a savings plan for the first time and i'm sure they're not alone that a lot of institutions are seeing that so uh, any any common practices or best practices of those who are doing better in this environment than others I think sort of classic example of those who are trying to make act be as active as possible, whether that's looking inwardly and trying to figure out what's driving their portfolio, um, what's driving liquidity balances, what's driving credit performance. Uh, but the other piece would be thinking about what you can control. You know, we're sitting here talking about everything that sort of you inherit through the economic environment. You can control your expense base. Or, or work on that. You can think about branch rationalizations. And we've seen some institutions come out there with 20, 25% cuts in terms of the branch networks with the eye that digital adoption is increasing. I mean, the, the line that folks have been using is that, you know, we've seen five years of progression around digital adoption in just a few months. And, 
and we, we have wow. a mobile banking survey where we've been asking consumers a wide variety of questions. And one of them is, you know, what's happened to your branch visits post-pandemic? They're down about 65%. Uh, where, where 65% of participants said they're going far less. And that same cohort says they're using their mobile apps in, in turn for a lot of the things that they would normally go to the branch for. So I think you're seeing the consumer change. And I think that's prompting some of the better banks to say, okay, this year's really tough. Maybe even next year's really tough. Yeah. How do, how do we limit cost and prepare for the future? Are you seeing a lot more investment in, in kind of that or that digital transformation, so to speak? We're, we're certainly seeing more attention. I don't know if I've seen as much in the way of investment dollars, but I, I, I think that the smart banks would be doing that if you haven't already, because the idea that this is a slow moving trend that we're getting to, I think that that's, that ship has sailed now. We're here now. And if you're going to have any sort of retail strategy, I, I think you have to have this and, and maybe even have to have some sort of digital offering from a commercial piece as well. The, I was on a call earlier today and uh, it was M&A related and it was, it was from our M&A advisory team. And, and the comment was made that institutions that, that you know, made it through the recession, but maybe haven't as been as profitable as they should or, or haven't, you know, the management teams aren't quite where they need to be. Their pencils aren't quite as sharp. You know, this go around now, we're seeing heightened M&A activity, a lot more interest than maybe we had seen in the past few years. So, and again, that's been more of our, our advisory practice. With, with net interest margin compression and lower multiples on smaller institutions, what are you seeing on the M&A front? We're, we're not seeing much in the way of transactions yet, but we're hearing lots of chatter for exactly the reason you just said. And <clears throat> there's a couple of things that are different this time than coming out of the Great Recession. Sure, no one really knows what credit quality looks like, but I think we can all kind of say with a, with a high degree of confidence that we're not looking at four years of inventory necessarily, or at least the same level of inventory of bad assets to work through like we did out of the Great Recession. You know, we don't have this massive housing bubble. We don't know how long it takes sort of to work through this stuff. So I think you get to the other side more quickly once we get some sort of comfort over what the actual price is. Two, the earnings environment's really challenging, as you talked about, from, from an earnings standpoint. And, and you're not really going to get a pickup in them really soon. So it seems like a, a better way to, to, to actually drive earnings higher is through M&A. Three, the, the digital branch reduction piece. You know, Transactions are a great way to, to consolidate branches. And, and then four, on the valuation discussion, coming out of the Great Recession, the bigger guys were trading lower valuations than the smaller guys. And so if it was a stock deal, it was really hard to get done. And now that's not happening. You've actually got sort of the stars aligning there. So I think you'll see more. And I think you'll, you have more management teams who've sort of gotten maybe religion on the need for scale on, on this piece too. So I, I just feel like you'll have more conversations come together and more transactions come starting maybe early next year, second quarter next year. And that's consistent with what I've been hearing internally as well. You know, so we, we've talked about some of the challenges, you know, where are the opportunities you see for the industry heading into 2021? It's certainly tough out there, but I think you get kind of a pass on this year. And you might even get a pass first quarter, second quarter, next year. So 
So again, back to what, what you can control, if, if you get a pass in terms of what earnings look like because everybody thinks they're going to be bad anyway, now's the time to sort of think about positioning for the future. And some of that is, is thinking about creating the right customer-facing experience. You know, I, I talked about digital from a retail standpoint, but there's certainly plenty of things you can do in terms of having the right products uh, and, and services from a commercial standpoint as well. I think thinking about the right distribution channel you want to have and positioning for that and really taking a look at what your expense structure is and, and trying to think about how to make yourself leaner. And the reason why I say there's opportunity to do that now is because you can take a little bit of an upfront hit and no one's going to be upset with you doing it today. Um, and at the same time, I, I would think about, you know, how do I grow? And I would think hard about M&A, either as a buyer or as a seller, because I, I think there is going to be opportunity for those who are moving in that direction. And then the last piece, you know, we, we mentioned PPP. A lot of smaller banks have all these new customers. I would make sure that I'm working to serve them as well as possible. It seems like smaller banks have gained new customers and potentially share there. Make sure you don't lose them. Just because they came today doesn't mean that that they're here forever. So let's, even if they're not going to make us a ton of money today, let's make sure that we're catering to them. So when things get back to normal, we have good customers there for us so we can grow at a faster pace. Any silver linings for the industry that you see as a result of this environment? I think it's made us rethink some things or it's forced us to do some things that we had to do anyway, whether that is sort of efficiency, thinking about modernizing systems, thinking about contingency plans with everybody working from home, I, all different kinds of stuff that we probably didn't want to get to as much that now we absolutely had to do. Uh, get really clever and dig in the credit in, in ways that, that we haven't had to do in a while. And, and, and especially around balance sheet strategy, you know, that's, it's the stuff that the Alco guys go crazy for and guys like you and me love talking about, but not everybody does. But it's really making us think really hard about what our customer base looks like. And if you do the work now, I think it's really going to benefit you for a long period of time going forward. So that's, that's my silver lining is that it's forced us to do hard work that will benefit us for the future. All right, Nathan. So... Here's the here's the the money question here. What's your outlook for 2021? We we think returns look pretty challenged and and no small part because of higher credit costs. You know, while the biggest guys have have already reserved for potential losses because of things like CECL, you know, the smaller guys haven't had to comply with CECL. So reserves are gonna have to continue to build. And we're kind of in the camp that that charge offs peak late next year, but in 2021. And that we can kind of move on uh, from there. And while there'll sort of be some lingering problems and margins will will be depressed, uh, returns might not be as challenged in in 22. Uh, but you kind of see earnings get nearly cut in half, so it's a pretty tough scenario. Uh, but I'll tell you this from from the public market standpoint, that's absolutely priced in. So, and in fact, it's probably even more negative than that. So, as I said earlier. Uh, it might sound very negative, but we're probably more positive than some. <laughs> so there is an opportunity to sort of outperform broad expectations right now uh, if if we're even right. 
Well, that's a good place to end it. I always enjoy speaking with you, Nathan, and want to thank you for giving us some food for thought as we head into the, the planning and budgeting season and into 2021. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. I want to thank you again, Nathan, for sharing your thoughts on some of the challenges and opportunities in community banking. If you'd like to hear more from Nathan, be sure to follow and listen to his Street Talk podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. At the end of each episode, I'd like to take a moment and let you know more about some additional resources we have available. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for listening to in your best interest, an ALM First podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes and should not be relied upon as recommendations or financial planning advice. We encourage you to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals regarding all investment decisions. Current and future holdings are subject to risk. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Podcasts should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The views and opinions expressed by the ALM First financial advisor speakers are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and ALM First financial advisors disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice because investment decisions are based on numerous factors may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any ALM First financial advisor's product. Neither ALM First Financial Advisors nor the speaker can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. ALM First Financial Advisors is an SEC-registered investment advisor with a fiduciary duty that requires it to act in the best interests of clients and to place the interests of clients before its own. However, registration as an investment advisor does not imply any level of skill or training.